Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady, and now we also share this not only through these recordings, but we provide these lessons live on YouTube every Sunday morning at 9.15, and also available throughout the week. We do this because Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Now, this lesson, which is titled Preparing to Withstand the Coming Apostasy, Part 3, taken from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Again, let me remind you that you can not only listen to the teaching through our Podbean website, but also can view the lesson as it is taught in our classroom located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 a.m., and we have large numbers of people who attend each and every week. We love having visitors come to our class, and we will certainly welcome you when you come. The class begins at 9.15 a.m. every Sunday morning. If you are interested in watching this lesson being taught through the location of YouTube, we invite you to go to YouTube and then type in Believer's Bible Class. That will take you to our location and you will be able to hear and see the lesson as it is taught. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin today's lesson, so let's go into the Believer's Bible class and find a good seat and open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. Today for Believer's Bible class, we are starting out with our, actually our 23rd lesson in the book of 2 Timothy, and we welcome all of our, our viewers here and encourage you to, to subscribe. Now, we are in chapter 3, and we're talking about one of the most important verses in the Bible, or set of verses in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. But before we go any farther, let's open a word of prayer, and then I want to do a bit of a review for us. Dear Father... I thank you for the time that we can spend here today, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak through me, and it will not be me teaching, but it will be him instead, and that you will speak in such a way that not only do we come to understand the message in our heads and in our intellect, but that you burn it down into our souls so that we can understand what it's really to be about. We can see the apostasy that is coming. And we can see our responsibility to stand up and push back. And I pray, Father, you'll give us courage and you'll give us spiritual perseverance in not giving up, knowing that we follow the champion who will take over and rule the world one day, and we can't wait. Now, Father, I pray for all of us that you help us to learn to listen for the sound of his trumpet. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week, we started off with the last part of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And if you remember that this last part, salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, and we unpack that in a serious passage, we came to look at that so that we could understand what the Bible teaches. Now, many people believe salvation is a momentary experience, and that's it. That is not the way the Scripture teaches it. The Scripture teaches salvation in three phases, and I want to try and illustrate for that for you today. The first phase is called justification. That happens in an immediate period of time. It's immediate when it happens. It's not a long drawn out process. When you place your faith in the 
plan and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, believing in who he is, it's immediate. And it saves us from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. No longer are we facing hell. Then there is the second phase, which we're going to talk about more today, which is sanctification. It is not immediate. In fact, it is progressive and it takes a lifetime. And it saves us from the power of sin. Sin's power is broken through our sanctification. Does that mean we'll be sinless? No, but it means we will sin less. Now, the final part is glorification. That comes at the end of our lives and Jesus' return. It is instantaneous. And in addition to that, it saves us from the place of sin. No longer will we be in this sinful earth when glorification occurs. Now, verse 15 is talking about justification. But verses 16 and 17 are dealing with sanctification. And that's why we need to see this important second phase of how this goes. Does the Bible really teach that we're to be about sanctification? Or is that just some fancy theological word that uh, scholars created up to make them sound erudite and brilliant? I would say it is exactly what the scripture teaches. And maybe we go to the most qualified expert on that, Jesus. And Jesus is, in fact, talking to God in a prayer called the High Priestly Prayer in John 17, verses 16 and 17. And he says this, speaking of his followers, they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in truth. What is he saying? I want sanctification in truth. What truth is that? Ah, it tells us, doesn't it? Your word is truth. That's where we're coming from. The scripture is what leads along with the Holy Spirit to sanctification. Notice what Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Sanctified. So in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3, and really the first four verses of chapter 4, there's going to be warnings about preparing for and the apostasy we're going to face. Now, let's review quickly. Is the apostasy occurring in the world? No. No. Only in the church. Well, how do you know it's only in the church? Because apostasy is leaving the truth. The world never knew the truth. The world never was responsible for the truth. The church was. And yet, this is where Satan is attacking. And we need to see that. Many times, the most difficult apostate efforts to recognize is not the misapplication of Scripture or the failure to properly translate the biblical record. But it's instead the intentional omission of scriptural truth. Look what Paul said in in Acts chapter 20, verses 26 and 27. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. What's Paul saying? I'm not leaving anything out. I'm giving you everything. Is that what the churches today do? No. No. What do they like to omit? Well, number one, prophecy. If you go to Solomon's porch, like we talked about last, several Sundays ago, you will not hear one word of prophecy. What we're supposed to be doing, he says, is preparing for the kingdom of God because we're going to bring in the kingdom of God. Is the church responsible for bringing in the kingdom of God? No. Who's responsible for bringing in the kingdom of God? Jesus, when he comes back at the end of the tribulation period, that's when, but they don't want to talk about tribulation. You see, that's scary. And their main focus demographics don't like scary. So they're not going to talk about prophecy. 
They're not going to talk about hell and eternal damnation. They're not going to talk really about sin or they'll soft pedal it. They don't talk about the blood that our Lord shed for us because if you talk about the blood, you have to talk about the reason for shedding blood, which is sin and payment of sin to escape eternal judgment. So I'm convinced that God blesses the church that teaches and preaches the entire Bible, omitting nothing. And we must stand up and speak out when we hear God's word being neglected, negated, marginalized, much less banned. We need to understand that it's coming. Now look again at the passage we finished with last week, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Magnificent verse. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, you remember, we looked at this word inspired. It's a combination of two Greek words, theo and neustis. Theo neustis, they translated in the New American Standard as inspired. What it means at its core has been translated by a number of people, God breathed. Now, I'm going to suggest a little different translation. God breathed was what has been said for a long time, and yet it misses some of the nuances in the Greek. And I read several scholars uh, this week, and they said maybe the best way to translate it is it's breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. That seems to indicate that he's more in control of the message that's being written down. Because what is being written is exactly what the Lord God wants. Those men who wrote it volunteered to be in the Spirit and allow God to write through them. And it is the exact words that he wants. That's how we get verbal plenary inspiration of the Scripture. You know, I found something this week. We talked about a phrase or a name that nobody knows. It's hapox logomena, which means only used once in the scripture. As I did some more research, you know what I found? Most scholars will agree that this word theonustus, this was the first time it was used in any Greek text they can find. In other words, Paul and the Holy Spirit came up with this word. Now, it was used afterwards. But this is a special word that was made for what is going on. So we understand this includes the Old Testament, it includes the New Testament, and the verb is in the present tense, which is referring to all of Scripture. Now, let me share with you a couple of other passages that speak to this we didn't have time to look at last week. The first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. It says, but just as it is written, things which eye has not seen or ear not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the spirit for the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God and who among men knows the thoughts of man, except the spirit of the man, which is in him. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that we will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What he is saying there is, God's thoughts, of course, are higher than our thoughts. And we are not able to understand them unless he explains them to us. God can explain to us what he wants us to know so that it is understandable to us. And he can create that understanding in us. Let's look at another passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God 
that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Notice in that passage, there's two key things. The word is not the word of men. And some people want to say, oh, no, men wrote the Bible. They are not the main authors of the scripture. The Holy Spirit is working through that man, but it's God's word. That's number one. But number two, so it performs its work in those who believe. The Holy Spirit uses that scripture, and we're going to look at that more in just a second, how he does that. And maybe even in Hebrews chapter 1, it says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through him also he made the world. He is speaking to us. The Holy Spirit, I think to try and get this down to the most understandable way, it would be this way. God's process, while being in the Spirit, for example, as it states of David in Matthew twenty-two forty-three, God's Spirit so infused and influenced the biblical writers that they recorded God's own words. And that's how we should understand the Scriptures. Now, what is one of the main reasons for those Scriptures besides salvation? Sanctification. That's what he wants for us, sanctification. Let's look again at this verse in 2 Timothy. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, profitable. The Greek word there means profitable, beneficial, advantageous. Advantageous for what? Four things we're going to see. But let's look. Does the scripture really teach that God's word is profitable to us? Well, the answer is over and over and over. Remember in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth and make it bare and sprout and furnish seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word, which goes forth from my mouth, I will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Another passage in Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is living and active. Now we'll get to the rest of that verse later. Living and active. It is uh, something that is not just words written on a page. This is something that's alive. Something God uses in men and women's hearts. And it changes things. And it works on things. Now what about the advantageousness of the scriptures? Well, let's look at several passages on that. First, about their ability to bring about success of God's plan. In Joshua 1, 7 and 8, it says this, But be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left so that you will have success wherever you go. What is he promising? Success from the word of God. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. How about building a sanctification process in Psalm 1, 2 and 3? It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields his fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Even for the newborn believer, in 1 Peter 2, 2, it says, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that we may grow in respect to salvation. So this understanding that needs to come to us is that the Bible is highly profitable. Isn't something, an activity that's profitable, something we want to do. Yes. And this is the most profitable of all for us when you look at things from an eternal perspective. Now, one of the things we have been finding as we look, sometimes the meaning that turns the whole verse is in a very small word. 
And when I was studying this, I wanted to get to inspired and profitable and teaching and reproof and correction. And I almost skipped over four. This is the little Greek word pros. And pros means to the advantage, at or near, towards, etc. However, when you take pros and you combine it with another noun or group of nouns, and you put that in the accusative case, it then carries with it special meaning. Now, I put in your notes the four possible meanings of the accusative with pros. It can be a meaning of place, that is, towards a location. That's not what's going on here. It can have a meaning of time, but that's not what's going on in this verse either. It can have meaning of relationship. But that's not. What it has here is a meaning of a goal or a purpose in order to. So it's profitable for, for the purpose of this. These things that follow are the purpose of what the scripture is there for, is what this verse is saying. The very first one is teaching, didaskalia. It's, of course, accusative because it's following that accusative prose. The main meaning of this word is teaching or instruction. You can, under certain contexts, allow it to mean the end goal, which maybe you'd translate as doctrine. The fact is, though, it's the, the word is centered on the teaching, the learning, and we need to come to see this. What it's saying here is that the Bible and it alone should be taught. The primary purpose of this material and information is to instruct us with the truth. We want to know the truth. As living, as we live, we need to know what is true. The Bible is the ultimate source of truth. That's why teaching, I think, appears first on this list that Paul wrote. You remember earlier in the book of Timothy in our study, we saw be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. There it's talking about the believers need to study on their own and to learn the scriptures so that they can accurately handle them. It's interesting. When the church very first started, what was one of their primary functions? Well, in Acts 2.42, it says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, breaking the bread and prayer. This being in that first position in this list gave it primacy, the apostles' teaching. If you look back when Israel was fixing to get destroyed, not Israel, Judah, the kingdom of Judah, and they were leaving God. If you look in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. That's rather strong to me, rather quivering to me. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Yes, well, let's wait a second. If you look in our nation, what is happening to our children? And it's direct relationship to forgetting the word of God, his law. And it's, it's a clear example. You know, people will stand up who things like this happen to their children, and they will say, where is God? Why didn't he intervene? Why didn't he do something? And the answer is because of you and all of us forgotten his law, and ignored it and rejected it. And this is what happens. And that's what he said would happen. And you ignored him. And this is serious to see what's going on in our country. Now, I want you to look at another important verse. And now I'll get myself in trouble with this one, but that's okay. I stay in trouble, it seems like. Julie can witness to that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Before we read it, let me ask you a question. What is adultery? Adultery is, and I'm not asking for any of your suggestions because I'm not sure what you'll say. And I want to say this very delicately, but it is substituting of what God's plan for you was for your plan. 
If you're married, God plans for you to be with that spouse for the rest of your life, not substituting someone else. Now, that's the base meaning of adultery, but adultery is not limited to just that. Look in this passage. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Now, when you hear in the scripture the phrase, lose heart, what's the English phrase for that? Quit. Give up. Lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. I want you to think about this. How do you adulterate the word of God? You add to it. You, you do with something else. I have to tell you, and I hate admitting this, but as I studied this week and I went over that passage, tears started coming to my eyes. And I got down on my knees and I said, God, I know I can come up with all kinds of excuses why a while back, a number of years ago, I followed the instructions and I taught the purpose-driven life. And I adulterated your word. I should be teaching the Bible and the Bible alone. You called me to teach the Bible, and that's what I should teach, and I should not adulterate it by trying to do those kinds of things. I should have spoken up. You say, oh, well, Doug will certainly speak up if there's a concern. Well, Doug didn't. Just went along. But we can no longer allow adulterating the Word of God. One final thing, real quick, in Acts chapter 5. Verse 27, it says this, But when they had brought them, they stood before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, Who ge- We gave you strict orders. And we'll talk about those strict orders in just a second. Who's talking here? This is the same Sanhedrin that voted to crucify Jesus Christ. Okay? And... Peter and John had just healed a lame man, and they are being brought before, and they said, now, wait a second. We gave you strict instructions here. What is it that the Sanhedrin, controlled mostly by the Sadducees at the time, what is it they wanted to stop teaching in the name of Jesus? Do you see that? Saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So teaching is the primary purpose of the scripture to build the sanctification process. And we need to understand, especially if you've been called to be a teacher that you have the sanctification process of yourself as your responsibility. You have the sanctification responsibility if you're the husband of the family. But you also have it of the people you're teaching. You have that, that process as your responsibility. You should teach in a way to encourage and build and promulgate the sanctification process of becoming more like Christ. Now, what's next? Reproof. Exekos in Greek. That means that by which a thing is proved or tested, or even conviction or evidence of. The meaning of this word is really twofold. First, these scriptures can be used to prove the accuracy of God's communication to us. But second, they can be used to convict us of sin or wrongdoing. And the goal of reproof is to expose untruthfulness, falsity and capricious beliefs, and then also to challenge wrongful behavior. I want you to notice, because I saw this this week, and I'd never seen it before, how it fits together. I want us to go back to that verse in Hebrews where it talks about the Bible. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. What can this sword do? It can pierce as far as the division of the soul and the spirit. Now, where do we get a blade that can do that? Of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, I want you to keep that verse in mind for just a second as I'm explaining this next setting. Because what we have is a situation where the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah. 
And they said, not only are we rejecting him, we want you to kill him for us. And Jesus was brutally tortured and murdered. And they were all there giving hearty approval. Fifty days later, when the Holy Spirit, did you know what, yesterday was Pentecost? Fifty days later, when the church was born and Peter, John, and all the rest of them were filled with the Spirit, Peter stood up and he started teaching. And he went to Joel chapter 2 first. And he said, the Holy Spirit has sent from Jesus, and he's at the right hand of the Father, according to Joel chapter 2. He went to Psalm 16, teaching that Jesus would rise from the dead, and he did. He went to Psalm 132 after that, that Jesus is the heir to David's throne, and one day we'll sit on David's throne. And finally, in Psalm 110, that Jesus is now at the right hand of God the Father. And at the end of that teaching session on Pentecost, the first day, they all said, what shall we do? Why did they say that? Well, look there in Acts 2.37. When they heard this, they were what? Pierced to the heart. Just like Hebrews 12 said, it pierces and separates soul and spirit. They were pierced and they said to Peter and the rest of them, brethren, what shall we do? That's the power of the scripture. Even in reproof. And you can come to see that as they're teaching that. And I think it's important. Now, Why is it that we need reproof? Well, look what Solomon said. We start out in Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean unto your own understandings. What is it saying? Trust God. Don't lean on your own understanding. Well, why? Why not? Don't we have reason? Can't we figure things out? Well, look what it says in Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You see, we don't like to have our sins exposed. In John 3.20, it says, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. This is the perfect example we need to see of the apostate church that is sweeping our nation. They are aimed at a demographic group of people who are either unbelievers or carnal believers, and those people do not want to hear reproof. They do not want their deeds exposed. They do not want someone telling them this is sin and there's going to be judgmental results of this, condemnation in your life, discipline in your life because of it. They don't want to hear that. So that's why they can get 30 or 40,000 a Sunday to meet so they can hear Purple Haze song, not so they can have reproof. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, it's going to talk about this. For the time will come when they, that is these apostates, will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. You want to put by own desires, a little footnote in your Bible, the church growth gurus, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside the myths. Or what the prophet Amos said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine to the land. Not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but rather for the hearing of the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and from north even to east, and they will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and they will not find it. I'm going to suggest to you today that that is a prophecy that is being fulfilled in our nation. And you think about it. We who attend First Baptist Dallas are in a watering hole in the midst of a desert in many respects. You get out there. I don't know how many people I've heard other people say, well, we need to find a church that teaches and preaches like yours. Well, we don't know one in your area. I'm sorry. This, this famine is coming on our, is here on our nation, and we need to understand it. All right, teaching, reproof. Number three, correction. Well, isn't that really the same thing as reproof? No, it's not. This word is a long word in Greek, epinathosis, epinathosis, and it means an improvement of life or character. This word is also a hox legomani because it doesn't appear anywhere else in the scripture. It means to set right 
or to restore to its proper condition. In other words, here's the way it works. You're being taught what God's Word really saying. As that's happening, reproof occurs because you say, you know, what I'm doing is not right. I'm adulterating the Word of God, or I'm doing this, or I'm doing that. And you recognize that statement. But you can't stop there. Once you recognize that what's wrong, you've got to put into effect a plan to change what's wrong, to improve in the, in the process of getting more and more Christ-like, the sanctification. And so that's what this word correction means. Look at, for example, Psalm 119, 9 through 11. Let me tell you something. I've been studying this psalm. I told you what we're going to do a short series on next after 1 Timothy. After that, I'm bowing to some strong pressure being put on me. We're We're going to do a study of Psalm 119. Won't be long, but we'll do a study of Psalm 119. And then my plan is to go to Isaiah. And you can see the number one uh, person who has been urging me to do that. But that's where we're going so that you have an idea. But after this, I do want us to take a few weeks after 2 Timothy to talk about the rapture that's coming. Because we need to, we need to know how to recognize the sound of his trumpet. Now, Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure? Isn't that a great question? Isn't that a question that needs to be asked by the young men of our country? Yes, it does. By keeping it according to your word, with all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. This word treasured means like a treasure house or a storehouse. You pack things in there so that when the time comes and you're in need, you can go in there and get them. That's what it's talking about. Retrieving all of and saving all of these words of God that we memorize in the storehouse. And in fact, the principle is even better than that. When you save all those passages that you memorize in your spiritual storehouse, you're not the only one who goes in there and gets them. You know who else does? The Holy Spirit. Doug, do you remember? Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that verse in a long time. Well, you need to now. And he does that. Now, the final one, training. Now, this is more difficult for me to try and explain because in a way it doesn't seem to fit, and yet it does because it's the Word of God. This word training means the whole training and education of children. Now, wait a second. I'm not a child anymore. Well, now we, got, we get some music. But the fact is that this kind of concept is what we have to have. Let me tell you the best example that I know. I've told you this before, but let me tell you again. There was a man who was prominent in a small community, but he had a son who just was an outlaw, it seemed like, and rebellious. And he wouldn't obey the father. He wouldn't do what the father and the mother wanted, etc. And pretty soon, somebody like that gets in trouble. And he was arrested. And the father, who knew the county judge, went and talked to him. The county judge says, let me handle this. Because he knew how the training went in that man's home. And so... He, the boy was arranged and he said, I'm going to give you a choice because you're clearly guilty. You can either spend two years in the state penitentiary or what I will do is probate that sentence and you can go and enlist in the Marines. And if you make it through the Marines, then your sentence will be wiped out. The boy chose the Marines. Well, after the first 12 months Uh, Being in the Marines, he he got a week pass, and he came home to visit his parents. And he came home, and they took him out to dinner and had a wonderful time, and they spent a week with them and went back. And shortly after that, the father had lunch with the judge. And he said, you know, it's pretty amazing to me. When he came home, he said, yes, sir, and no, sir. (laughs) He would open the door for his mother and even help her with her chair. 
And he did all these other things and he just reeled off. And he said, I don't understand it. I was trying to teach him those things all his life. And the judge said, you taught him, the Marines trained him. Now you begin to see what this word means. It's training. The scripture is there for this kind of training for us. It involves training and correction and encouragement and discipline and cultivation. This process is that which parents are supposed to use on their children. You know, in Ephesians 6.4, it talks about this. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word there, discipline, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, is the exact same word. I wanted you to see that. Now, you can look at righteousness, and it's the... Basically, the word we understand, training in righteousness, the condition acceptable to God. Now, here's something that's interesting I want you to see. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it's going to talk about four different types of people. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh, or as to infants in Christ. I give you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Now, understand what's going on here. He's explaining something. There are four types of people in this world that we need to understand. Number one is non-believers. It's a group in and of themselves. Number two, there's believers, but there's three types Number one, there is a babe in Christ. You know, when someone receives Jesus as their Savior, what do they know? They basically know faith in Jesus Christ. And they haven't had a chance to learn anything. So that's one group. They're immature. They have to be given just milk. But then there's some who they just don't grow. Growth in Christ Sanctification doesn't seem to be that important to them. You know, yesterday I went to a recital of this beautiful little girl named Aubrey Brady. And I got to see her in ballet. And the things she did were so cute. And they were beautifully done from someone who's a three-year-old. But what if I went to a recital and see that, and Aubrey is 14 and she's doing exactly the same thing that she was doing then. That wouldn't be cute at all. Said, Something's retarded in her learning process. I'm worried here. You see? Now, the concept is exactly that. There are people who become believers, and they're not growing. And they are letting sin and their desires retard the growth and maturing process. So there's a baby. There's a carnal believer. And there is a spiritual believer, that one who is wanting to grow, that one who is wanting to learn, accepting the teaching, accepting the reproof, accepting the correction and the training in righteousness. And that's what we're seeking after and what we want. So let's look maybe at Ephesians 4.14 just to see this concept one more time. As a result, We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about on the wind of every doctrine by the trickery of men or the craftiness of deceitful scheming. Don't let that happen to you, please, is what I'm saying and what Paul is saying. Be spiritual men. So, we finish this verse. There's a correlation here I want you to see as we work through this and we see the interaction between these two, these four concepts. Number one, teaching. That's knowing what to believe, teaching. Reproof, discerning what not to believe. Correction, to learn what to do in response to reproof. And finally, training in righteousness, to becoming equipped uh, to incorporate the teaching in our lives. You know, as you look through this, we need to see that the key is the Word of God. You say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit indwells you when you became a believer. You can't ever lose the Holy Spirit. But you can't ignore the Word of God. 
I would suggest to you, you think about your hand. You got five digits on your hand. I have to say it that way. One time I said you had five fingers and somebody tried to correct me. No, thumb's not a finger. But you got five digits, so that's what I'm going to say. The first one, hearing the Word of God. You say, well, yeah, okay. When, when we're in the service, they read the Word of God out loud publicly. We all read together and I hear it. Yep. I happened to grow up in the home of a woman who would decide, you know what? I'm going to sleep. I'm just going to listen to the Word of God. And she would play it until, she, until it went off because she would fall asleep. But she's listening to the Word of God. Number two, reading the Word of God. How often do you read the Word of God? Now, many of you say, oh, I'm doing really good there. I read it every day. Wonderful. That's just number two. Number three is studying the Word of God. And we need to be doing that, I think, in two different ways. Number one, we need to be putting ourselves in positions where we're hearing the Word of God taught and we can study it along. That's one of the reasons why I make certain that we have printers and that we get these notes printed so that you can take these with them and you can study on your own and, and hopefully maybe even teach it one day yourself. But doing that, also your own time to study. How many of you have a time when you set aside to study God's Word? Not read God's Word, not have a devotional, not a prayer time, not, not a listening to it, but where you study God's Word. Well, that's something you need to do. And we're only on number three. Number four, the pointer, that's memorizing God's Word. Are you memorizing God's Word? Do you have a plan to memorize God's Word? Are you hiding God's Word in your heart? Because it's going to be the lamp to direct your feet. You need to memorize God's Word. Build up that storehouse. Did you know that if you memorize a verse in week one, and you review it accurately... Weeks two through seven, you will have that verse for the rest of your life. It's like putting scripture in the bank, in the treasure house. Now, that leaves the thumb. What is the most important digit on your hand? The thumb. It's the thing that separates us from animals. They don't have a reposable thumb. They can't do things the way we can do it. This thumb is the key to your hand. It's also the key to God's scripture. And what it is, is meditating on God's word. Is that what David says he did in Psalm chapter 1, verse 2? Yes, that's what he said. Is that what God instructed Joshua to do in Joshua chapter 1? Yes, he did. When they were bringing back Isaac's wife from the far journey, Isaac had never seen her. When they were coming, what was Isaac doing out in the field? Meditating on God's Word. When David would wake up at night in his bed, and Psalms over and over, what would he say he's doing? Meditating on God's Word. I'd say, Doug, you know, I'm not sure I even know how to meditate. You mean some kind of Far Easter? No, I'm not talking about that at all. You see, in transcendental meditation, that's where you remove everything with your mind. Oh, the kind of meditation I'm talking about is putting into your mind God's Word and meditating on it. And you say you don't know how to meditate. I would disagree with you on that. You do know how to meditate. You just don't realize it. Let me ask you this. Kathy, you grew up with four, I mean, you had four, you've had four kids, two, two girls and two boys. Would they ever cause you to worry? <laughs> Some of them were policemen, right? Three. That's, that's cause for worry. If you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. All you got to do is sit down and think, okay, when I worry, what do I do? Well, I think about it constantly. I, I examine this or that. I see what other people think, and I, I, it keeps me up at night. That's all meditation. You can do it. Now, let me give you... One suggestion before we finish. If you want to start meditation, I'm going to direct you to what I think is the most, this is not an English word, but meditatable passage in the Bible to open up the portal into God's throne room. And that's the prayers of Paul found in the book of Ephesians. First, this in chapter 1. 
And there's two verses, I think it's 16 and 17 or 17 and 18. And then chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Chapter, that's where, if you want to really do that. Now, the first chapter of Ephesians, it's like verses 16 to 18, somewhere in there. And, and Steve will tell me exactly in just a second. And chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Those are the ones I would, I would try to start with. 16 and 17. That's it. 16 and 17. Now, before we finish, I always want to say to any of you who are out there and who are watching on live stream, Jesus loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And you need to understand that. He says, but as many as received me, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believed on his name. In Revelation 3.20, he's talking to the church, but there was unbelievers there in the Laodicean church, and he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, I will come into him and fellowship with him. Now, Jesus doesn't open the door. You have to. But all you have to do is tell him, I'm putting my faith in you and your sacrifice for me, and I want you to save me. And you then will start this wonderful adventure on your sanctification process. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend here today. And I thank you for giving us this magnificent passage in 2 Timothy 3.16. I pray that you will help me to be faithful in studying. Father, I want to ask this morning for two things, two things especially. I pray, Father, that you will raise up an awesome evangelist in our nation that will have outreach to all of our people and that through his ministry, millions of people will come to know you in a personal way before you'll come back for your bride. And then we will pray for and support that evangelist when you bring him. And secondly, Father, that you will raise up a mighty prophet in our nation who will not be intimidated, who will not be fearful, but will speak with great boldness to point out the sin in our nation and the judgment that's come as a result and which will come even in greater heapings because of the sin in our nation to return the fear of you to our people. I pray that you will do these two things and you will do them soon so that maybe the children in our nation can be restored. And the trafficking will stop. Killing will stop. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.